Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be back with you. What a gift. There's no place that I and my family would rather be than here at this church and with you all. Um, Our prayers go out to Clarence and Anna, and I just think as a church we need to remember them. Uh, Anna's lost her uh, uncle, I believe, and Clarence lost, um, I think, his grandmother. Uh, So we need to be supportive of them in prayer. Uh, It's been a season of testing for many in our church. On a sweeter note, um, you know, we were surprised this morning by seeing our dear friends Chad and Karamia Dexter roll in and their dear friends who we spent two and a half weeks with, with Dr. Grisanti in Israel. I'm sure they could tell you many tales uh, prior to their time in serving the Lord in the Philippines as missionaries. So it's our joy to have members of the family of Christ join us. Well, we return this morning to the God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 4, the testing and temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And AV team, if I could have my first slide, that's great. And you all will recall quite a long time ago, we've had a few interruptions and Shepherd's Conference and a number of guest speakers, but a long time ago in a faraway place, we were walking through this text about the testing and temptation in the lives of God's children, and very specifically the testing and temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but by extension, how the Lord works in testing and temptation in all of our lives. And what God's Word has to say very, very clearly is that testing and temptation is going to be inevitable in the life of all true children of God. We don't bypass it. We don't get a pass. It's not a prosperity gospel, and Christianity is not a ticket to a better life. As we come to the Scriptures and we see in the life of Christ and the apostles and the disciples, and as we walk through the history of the church and we consider our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, very clearly, very evidently, the Word of God is true. That those who would love Christ and walk with Him will be subjected to testing from the hand of God and temptation by the hand of the devil. And yet, in and through all of these things, God is very much sovereign over both testing and temptation. We saw that the last two few times we met. God sovereignly uses both testing and temptation, though he is not the author of sin and though he does not entice us to sin, nonetheless, even as we've seen in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, God is sovereign over both and he uses both testing and temptation in the lives of his children for his glory and for our good. Very specifically, as we previously learned, on the one hand through testing to affirm what is good, to demonstrate and separate who is truly a child of God, to strengthen our faith, to give us the humility we need in order to see His beauty and His grace. But also through temptation, which Satan brings, he uses it to affirm what is good from his hand. And he also uses it to separate those who might appear to be walking with him, 
but in fact, we're not. He does it for his glory and he does it for our good. And these things are necessary for us at the end of the day to really show us what is a child of God. What truly is a child of God? Who is truly a child of God? Ultimately, who is like Christ? And this is what we're seeing in Matthew 4. And Lord willing, over the next three weeks, we're going to go a little bit slow. Each week, we're going to take one of these temptations that Satan brings to Jesus in the wilderness. And there's a reason we're doing this. It's in no small part because I and we as a church struggle with these very same things. We struggle with these very same things, and these things are given to us by the Lord to help us and to encourage us. And as we come through Matthew 4, the Lord God really shows us as He shows us through Matthew's Gospel. This is what Matthew's Gospel is walking us through. Who Jesus is according to God's Word. Who Jesus is according to God's Word. And brothers and sisters, if there is ever a time in our nation and in our world where there is confusion over who Jesus is, and where there is confusion, especially in America, of what a Christian is, it is now. If ever there was a time we needed to hear from God's Word who Jesus is, and by extension, what a true child of God is, it is definitely now. We just have to look at the world around us and Christendom around us. And why is it that we need this message? Well, it's because what Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. It's what we sang this morning. What is it that really matters most as you distill everything down? As we think of our brothers in Ukraine, as we think of others who are suffering around the world, at the end of the day, is it the size of our houses, the cars we drive, the schools we go to? Well, as we come to God's Word, when all of that is stripped away, at the end of it all, there is one thing that matters. And it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this indeed is what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. And so by way of review, since we've been away for a while, you'll recall that in Matthew chapter 1 through 2, it's through the genealogy and birth of Jesus that God shows us that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Christ. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, who has come to save his people from their sins according to God's Word. And then as we walk through Matthew chapter 3, it's through the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist that God shows us that He has sent Jesus to be our King, our Messiah, our Savior and Lord. And the one He has sent to fill this rule is in fact His beloved and eternal Son, the one upon whom His Spirit rests, and the one with whom God the Father is well pleased. And you'll recall that it is right after God has affirmed that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, His beloved Son, the one with whom He is well pleased. It's 
right after this that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested first by his Father and then to be tempted by the devil. And this is a leading that happens not unlike the leading of Moses and Israel 1,440 years, 1440 years earlier. And Jesus is led into the desert or the wilderness to be tested by God the Father and tempted by the devil. Not just for himself, brothers and sisters. He is led to this place and undergoes this for you and for I, myself, for sinners like us. And he does it to show us who he truly is. He does it also to demonstrate and show us what it means to be a faithful child of God. What does it mean to be a faithful child of God? What does it mean to be a beloved child of God? This is what Jesus demonstrates and he shows for us. Have a look at your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and we'll start once again at verse 16 and go all the way down to verse 11. And our focus as we go through this, as we go through the temptations over the next few weeks, is to consider what does it really mean to be a faithful child of God? Is it how much Bible you know? Is it whether you've gone to seminary or not? Is it whether you served in the mission field? Is it whether you have done great things for the Lord? What does it mean to be a beloved and faithful child of God? Matthew 3, verse 16, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. If you're anything like the Chin family, perhaps over the last few years, you have been disturbed by the number of scandals that have come forth in famous and celebrated Christian institutions, Christian leaders, 
and Christian organizations. There have been no shortage of them. Famous for their uncompromising public personas. Famous for hard stances on Christian worldviews. Famous for doing battle in the public arena. Allegedly for sound doctrine. Uncompromising in what they say. And yet as we have discovered and what has been revealed, most compromising in a consistent way in ongoing patterns in their private and personal lives. And truth be told, we have seen these things not just on the national and international stage, but brothers and sisters, you and I know we've seen this on the personal level as well. When I first met Julie, and we had our very first date. We sat down together and one of the things that came up was how many people we had known in ministry, bright lights, devout servants who had either stumbled or strayed from the faith, who had strayed from their love of Christ and initially were shocked by these things. And we're shaken because many times these are people or places that we looked up to and we admired. And yet they proved to be unfaithful in their families, in their churches, and to their God. And sadly, as the stories unfold, we begin to see that not infrequently there were patterns and there were warning signs that went on for some time that were witnessed by many who professed the name of Christ. We saw it happening before our own eyes. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if one of the reasons we are so shocked and we are so shaken by these things is it because we have become more enamored and placed our hope and faith in the giftedness and accomplishment of these people and these organizations. The giftedness and accomplishment of these people and these organizations rather than the gift of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, as we consider what we just heard, the words, the God-breathed words of Matthew 4, 1 through 11, what God begins to show us, every Christian, is what we need more than giftedness and accomplishment. What we so desperately need is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who shows us what it really means to be a faithful child of God. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus in this passage, he shows us that a faithful child of God is not necessarily an outstanding preacher, a gifted singer, 
someone who can raise huge sums of money for an institution. A faithful child of God is one who humbly endures testing and resists temptation according to God's word and regardless of the cost. Brothers and sisters, do you ever wonder whether you're fit for ministry? How often do I hear people say with me, well, I'm not gifted. I don't have anything to bring to the table. And yet through this passage and through every temptation, Jesus shows us the criteria for service, the criteria for pleasing the Lord, the criteria for leadership is a faith that's willing to humbly endure testing and resist temptation, not on our terms, but according to God's word, regardless of the cost. And, and this is what Jesus shows us, not just in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He shows it to us all the way through the Gospels and all the way to the cross. Verse 1 begins with Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And like Israel in the Old Testament, it's in the wilderness that Jesus is willing and able to do what typically you and I are not. It's without grumbling and complaining that Jesus is willing to fast and wait for God the Father. And he's willing to wait to the point of hunger, arguably to the point of starvation, certainly to the point of physical suffering, 40 days and 40 nights. And then in verse 2 through 10, it's in this condition of human frailty and weakness. It's not in a position of strength or glory. In this condition of human frailty and suffering, he is tempted not once but three times. And he's tempted not once but three times in three different ways that cover the scope of every human temptation. When we go to the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, these are the tests, or excuse me, the temptations that the Apostle John would refer to as the lust or desires of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust and desires of the eyes. They cover the entire realm of human temptation. And Jesus experiences these, not on a good day, he experiences these in very hard and difficult Moments And what's worth noting, throughout all of this, not only does Jesus not grumble or complain, but he intentionally chooses not to use his giftedness or his privilege as the Son of God to make his life easier or to get through this. He intentionally chooses not to use his giftedness or his privilege as the Son of God to take a shortcut or to get through this. Instead, in human weakness and frailty and suffering, he chooses to love and trust and obey God the Father according to his word. And this Jesus chooses to do, obviously, not just in the wilderness. He does it through the entirety of his earthly life. And he endures all testing and he resists all temptation according to God's word, regardless of the humiliation, regardless of the rejection, regardless of the suffering. And he does this all the way to the cross. Read through the Gospels and see that the temptations that come do not stop here. There is respite, 
but through the Pharisees, through the servants of the devil, through demons, all the way through, these same temptations come up over and over and over and over again. And what Jesus demonstrates from verse 1 through 11 is the testimony of a true child of God, a faithful child of God, is not a one and done. It's a willingness to persevere and endure all the testing that God brings our way from beginning to end. And it's an insistence on resisting all temptations that come our way according to God's word and regardless of the cross. Brothers and sisters, in conservative evangelical America, what we so often refuse to see, and I do wonder whether it's because of our lust for worldly success and prosperity and comfort, is that this is what is pleasing to God our Father. This is what a faithful child of God is and does. One who is willing to endure all testing and resist all temptation according to God's word regardless of the cost. Why? Because a faithful child of God is someone who does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what sets apart a child of God. And this is what Jesus shows us in the very first temptation. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Faithful children of God do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, this is not just for Jesus, brothers and sisters. This is for each one of us. Faithful children of God do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the very clear testimony of God's word that goes right back to the very beginning is that God created us, his human children, not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. This is the way we were created to be. This is how we were created to relate to God. This is how we're created to receive the love of God. It's not the other way around. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as you go to Genesis 1.3, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what follows, you'll recall, is in that six literal days, God speaks the world into existence. And all creation and life begins and ends with what? A piece of bread? A car? A job? A career? It begins and ends with the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And all creation and life is dependent on the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And without God's word, there is no light, there is no life, and there is no love. Did God create us to need food? Yes, he did. But he did not create us to live by bread alone. And he did not create us, brothers and sisters, to live for bread or to live for bread alone. And Jesus will later make that point as the disciples struggle with anxiety. They struggle with anxiety. Where's my next meal coming from? 
Where's my next job coming from? What am I going to wear? How am I going to dress? And Jesus points out to them, this is the way the Gentiles think, the godless people think, those who do not have God as their father, those who are like orphans or street children where you are wondering where your next meal comes from because you do not have a good and loving father who knows your needs before you even say it and will take care of you. Now, I know in our families, we're frail and we're small and we're a remote image from God. But parents, isn't it one of the greatest delights that we have to anticipate the needs of our children before they ask at Christmas time to consider what is it that their hearts desire and to wait and plan and save and have that for them so at a given moment and time, the joy of giving them something hopefully that is good for them and that they delight in. And Jesus makes this point, you're anxious because you're living for things rather than what God created you to live for. And yet, brothers and sisters, as we think about our lives, how much of our anxieties and struggles demonstrate that we are living for something or for someone that we were never created to live for. God created us to live by and for something far greater than food and education or a paycheck. And of all the gifts that God gives the first man and woman there in Genesis, the greatest gift of all is the gift of His Word. And it's a word that, unlike our words, is authoritative. It is a word that, unlike our words, is sufficient. And when we say sufficient, we mean that word is able to care for us entirely. Bread may fill your belly, but it will not fix your marriage. It will not resolve your conflicts. It will not make you right with God. And neither will your house, your car, your mortgage payments, or your education. And that's not, brothers and sisters, to belittle those things. Do we need them? Yes, we do. But they need to be placed in their proper perspective. They are not sufficient. And by the way, your spouse or your friends are not sufficient either. But God's word is sufficient. That's what the Lord shows us in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God's word is true. Every last word. And it's through the gift of his word that God gives himself to his children. The basis of that relationship, his love, his life, his goodness, is given entirely to his children through his word. And so, brothers and sisters, we neglect his word to our own demise. And it's no surprise in Genesis 3 when Satan comes, where does he go? What does he attack? He attacks the word of the Lord. Very specifically, he attacks our faith in God's word. He attacks its authority, its sufficiency, its inerrancy. And so in Genesis 3, Satan begins first by raising doubts about the goodness and truth of God's word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the implication or suggestion that follows is that there is a better life apart from God's word. There's a better job, there's a better spouse, there's a better gender, 
There's a better world. There's a better church apart from God's word. Apart from every word that God says. And what does Adam, the first human son of God, choose to do? Well, he certainly does not resist the temptation of a better and easier and more comfortable life apart from God's word. And rather than wait for God's word, and rather than wait for God, Adam chooses the lie, and he chooses the life of forbidden fruit over God's word. He chooses to live on his terms, by his choices, and by his desires, the desires of the flesh, rather than God's word. And brothers and sisters, ever since that time, this is one of the primary temptations that we face on a day-to-day basis. Will you live for the desires of the flesh, the basic necessities of life? Will you live by your choices, on your terms? Or will you wait for God and will you trust in His Word? As you think about that, brothers and sisters... And you think about the choices that Adam made. This is what an unfaithful child of God is. And this is what an unfaithful child of God does. Now we feel uncomfortable in saying that, don't we? But Adam is the very definition of an unfaithful child of God. A child who chooses to live on his term, terms by his choices and for the desires of his flesh, rather than waiting for God and trusting in his word. As you think of those scandals, and you go back, how often were these institutions and men who for long seasons of time had been enabled and allowed to live by their choices on their terms according to their desires. And we gave them a pass because they were incredibly successful and prosperous by the world's standards. Well, this is one of the reasons the Lord God brings testing and trials into the lives of his adopted children who now live in a fallen and sinful world. It's to teach us and it's to remind us what Adam and Eve and the sons of men choose to ignore. That God does, in fact, love us. He is, in fact, good. He does know what's best for us. That his word is indeed authoritative and sufficient and true. And brothers and sisters, often the Lord will withhold things from us. And we wonder why. And there are times where he allows us to suffer, and we wonder why. And yet, we fail to see in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, how desperately we need to see that there are things that are more important, chief of all, our relationship with our Father who is in heaven. And so we see as we move on to Exodus chapter 16, Hopefully you'll see the path of where I'm going. That God chooses intentionally to take the children of Israel, his adopted sons, who he has just delivered out of Egypt, and he intentionally brings them into the wilderness to test them. And why does he do do this? Is it because he's harsh and cruel? No. 
because he is teaching them the lesson that Adam and Eve refused to receive. That man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a lesson, brothers and sisters, that we all need to learn. If you have your Bibles, have a look, would you, with me to Exodus chapter 16. The Lord brings the children of Israel into the wilderness where there is no food and water. And he does this not because he is mean or evil. He does this to try and teach them humility and to grow their faith and to teach them that when there is absolutely nothing in the hardest of places, God still loves them. He's still good. He is walking with them. And he and his word is able to care for their every need. And what is their response? Verse 2 of Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They're discontent. They're not happy with what the Lord has done or the place he has brought them to. Had God saved them before? Yes, he did. Was it God's word that brought them there? Yes. And the people of Israel, verse 3, said to them, Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. What is it that they missed most in the wilderness? Their bread, what they had before. While they were slaves under other gods and a terrible Pharaoh in a distant land. What were they living by? Well, they weren't living by the word of God. What did they worship? Well, the desires of their flesh. And they go on to say, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Where do they end up? They end up with blasphemy, attributing to God who has saved them evil motives. And I want you to notice this. This is the path of unfaithfulness and infidelity. Whether it's in your marriage, your home, or your church. It begins with doubting God's word. Why did God bring us here? It continues with discontent with the life of God's word. Discontent with the life of God's word. This is where God's word had brought them. They may not have understood but clearly they were discontent. We don't deserve this. Our life was better somewhere else. There's a better life out there apart from God's word. There's a better marriage out there apart from God's word. There are better friends out there apart from God's word. Like Adam and Eve, unwilling to wait for the Lord, unwilling to wait for his word, Living by what they see rather than by faith. Living by some of God's word and not all of God's words. God's word's okay when it works for us. God's word's okay when it gets us out of Egypt and gets us away from the mean employer and the difficult people in our lives. Suddenly it's not okay when our lives become difficult and hard. And brothers and sisters, I'm there. I struggle with that just as much as anyone else. And when you go into ministry and the Lord strips away many of the whistles and bells that you had in the world before, it can be easy to be discontent if you gave it a thought or to scratch your head and think, 
Oh man, life was so much better when I was a physician. It does not take much. And if you give that an inch, it will become a mile in your heart and your life. And it starts slowly and it digs like a cancer and it becomes bitterness and discontent that contaminates the whole and it will contaminate and, like Adam and Eve, bring death and destruction to your marriage, your family, your children, your home, your church, and every aspect of your life. So the Apostle Paul writes, these are given to us for our instruction. And he points out how we're to flee idolatry because at the end, that's what it is. It's a desire and a worship for something other than God. And the most basic things we worship are the things that fill our belly and the desires of the flesh. It's the entry level, the gateway temptation. And as we come to Matthew 4, 1 through 4, it's not by accident that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And it's not by accident that the tempter comes after Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and is weak and hung- hungry and uncomfortable. And it's not by accident that Satan begins tempting Jesus with food in verse 3. If or since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I want you to note here the two things that Satan attacks or targets. He targets, first, Jesus' sonship, his relationship with God. If you are the Son of God or since you are the Son of God. What is all temptation? And every time Satan comes knocking at your door, where's he going? Albeit he masks it and goes in a roundabout route. Whether it's infidelity in your job, infidelity in a relationship, infidelity in service. It is always about your relationship with God. He is trying to drive a wedge in that relationship, and he does so by raising doubt about the word of the Lord. You know that, right? We've said this before. Where do marriages start to dive and take a tailspin? Well, it begins with our doubt and trust, right? Satan targets first Jesus' sonship, his privileged relationship with God. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The second place he goes is where Jesus is suffering. Our relationship with God and the areas where we are weak or frail or suffering. It's where Satan begins his attacks, typically, with most of us. And the sly suggestion that he gives is that God's Son, if he is indeed God's Son, should not have to suffer and wait. Why should you do that? You were there in Genesis 1. You were there when God speaks the world into existence, where he speaks a garden into existence, where he provides everything we need by his word. You are the word of God. You just speak and you can have it. Why suffer? And why let others ridicule your relationship with God? Why must Jesus suffer? Why must he wait for God's word? It's because Jesus has come not to live by some words of God. He has come to live by every word of God that proceeds 
from the mouth of God. Do you want to know what separates a true child of God, a faithful child of God, from all the posers and from all the fakers and from all those who pretend? It is not their Bible knowledge. It is not how well they live by some of the words of God. It is whether, day in, day out, they live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not just the ones that serve them well or line their pockets or give them successful ministries or attract crowds. And among those, every words that proceed from the mouth of God include words of the necessity of a suffering servant who will come and bear the sin and grief and humiliation and guilt and curse that we deserve to be crushed for our iniquities, to become unrighteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God. Why must Jesus suffer and wait for the word of God? He must do so because you and I have refused to do so. And he has come to do what we are unwilling or unable to do in and of ourselves. And he has come to do it for us. And he has come to do it out of love for the Father and out of incredible mercy and grace and love for us. That's why Jesus must do this. And according to God's word, he has come to save us from our sins. He has not come for himself. He has come to be the faithful son of God that he is. And so in verse 4, rather than using God's word to serve himself or to end his suffering, Jesus uses God's word for what it was intended. To live by faith in God the Father, to endure testing and to resist temptation, not to pursue a better life for himself, but instead to give a righteous life to you and I. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it separates those who truly love the Lord and those who are just in it for themselves. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. A faithful child of God loves and trusts God and His Word. A faithful child of God loves and trusts God and His Word. That's what Jesus is demonstrating and as we go to the next temptation, this is where Satan goes and this is what he begins to challenge. He provokes Jesus and challenges Jesus to begin to test God. Prove it, God, that you love me. Prove it, God, that you care for me. Prove it, God, that I am indeed the beloved Son of God. Julie and I have noted, as we've talked about this privately, where is it? that average everyday Christians begin to stray in their theology 
Where is it that everyday Christians begin to stray in their doctrine? Well, it's interesting. In America, something we've observed, it's not everybody, is that among men, not infrequently, it happens in the areas of our careers. When our careers do not live up to our expectations or what we had hoped for. Man does not live by career alone. Man doesn't live by ministry alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And suddenly when things don't pan out the way we'd expected as men in our work lives, and we begin to struggle or it gets uncomfortable, it's interesting how often doubt, discontent, and weird theology starts to come out. And for the sisters, and this is just anecdotal, it's not the gospel, our experience comes second, but it is interesting how often for the sisters and for single women as they reach the end of their 20s and they come into their 30s, if the Lord has not given them either a boyfriend, a spouse, or a family, It's interesting to see the Facebook posts. And it's interesting to see what is written and posted. And it's interesting to see how doctrine starts to veer. Fellowship starts to veer. Things start to go. And the problem, brothers and sisters, are not the external activities at the end of the day. What Jesus points out to us in the temptations is, are we willing to love and trust God day in, day out? Are we willing to believe that His Word is true, every last one of it? Are we willing to walk with Christ and God even if we don't get what we wanted or hoped for? Well, brothers and sisters, the good news of Matthew's Gospel is that where we fail, and where Adam failed, and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And Jesus here is not just an example. I know sometimes we say, okay, well, that's Jesus, right? He's true man, true God. He's the Son of God. You know, that, that's Him. You don't expect me to be perfect, Pastor Mark, do you? And yet, as we go to Romans 8, the Lord makes the point that all things do work out for good for those who love God, but that good is that you and I would be molded into the image of Christ. Jesus saved us so that we would be like Him and we would be with Him. But brothers and sisters, more than just an example, God sent His Son to be our greatest gift, our greatest treasure. And that's why the Apostle Paul looks at his education, looks at his suffering, looks at everything that he had, and he says, I count it all as scubalon, as dung, in comparison to the worth of what it means to know Christ. And then he goes on and talks about how he wants to know Christ, not only Christ's good times, but in his suffering and in his resurrection. 
And the point being is that the beauty and the goodness and the wonder, the greatest gift that God could ever give us is the beauty and wonder and glory of His love in Christ. That Christ is not just our example, brothers and sisters. He is our greatest treasure. And therein, brothers and sisters, lies not a secret, but a plain truth of what it is that empowers you to endure testing and to resist temptation. Husbands, How often are you willing to entertain conversations with other women? How often are you willing to look at things that would take you away from your wife? My hope would be that because you love your wife and you know your hearts, you would run from anything that would sever that relationship because you love and cherish the gift that God has given you. Now we get that even though probably, let's be honest about it, do we struggle with those things? But brothers and sisters, how much more so in our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And what is the provision that God has given us to endure testing and to resist temptation? It's the good news of the gospel through which God gives us His Son. It is His Word, not some of it, but all of it. So that we might see the glory of Christ, so that our faith might be strengthened. And so that when we struggle, brothers and sisters, it's not to close ourselves in or run away, but to go deeper and to run to Christ and to behold the glory of the gift that is worth everything and that makes sense of our suffering and our pain and our sorrow and gives us patience when we don't fully understand what the Lord is doing but says in due time the Lord will minister to us because he is a good father. He knows what he's doing and his aim and his goal is to bring us to himself. Brothers and sisters, are you a faithful child of God? Christ offers you the opportunity every minute and every moment, but it is found in one place and one place alone. It is found in Christ and his word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a gift we've been given. You are the very reason and the power and the joy and the goodness that enables us to overcome sin and temptation that comes to us every day in this fallen world. And you show us, Lord Jesus, even in the midst of frailty and weakness and humiliation, That the word of God is sufficient. That God the Father's love is steadfast and true. And that our hope and our faith is not in our giftedness or our accomplishments. Instead, it is in something far greater and far more wonderful. It is in you. In your name we pray. Amen.